I ask you to remain standing, please. We have much to cover in very little time. So we're going to immediately turn to Mark's gospel, to the ninth chapter. I'll give you a minute to grab your Bibles. I do hope that you've brought your Bibles. I'll give you a moment to retrieve those as we turn to the ninth chapter in Mark's gospel. We're going to begin reading in the very first verse. This is the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So I was saved by the bell last week, and it was probably for the best. This is a very difficult passage of text to really properly understand. So if you will look into your Bibles, what you'll find, if you read a modern translation of the Bible, if you look in your Bible, whether it's the ESV, NIV, NASB, what you'll find is that the, that the text is broken up, not only by chapter and by verse, but by headings at the beginning of each section. Now, none of these markers, as you know, none of these markers were included in the original autographs. None of them were even included in the early manuscripts. These chapter and verse markings, they were added sometime in the early 13th century. And then those headings that you see at the beginning of certain sections of Scripture, they were added whenever the translation that you're holding in your hand was produced. And so while these, while these markers, they're helpful to us, it's helpful to have chapter and verse so that we can quickly turn and, and refer to certain passages of Scripture and those headings, they help us to quickly identify the theme of a section of Scripture that we're coming to. While those are very helpful, these additions certainly are not part of the infallible Word of God. And so because of that, what you're going to find is that there's some differences depending on what translation you hold with regard to how these sections are divided. And we see that with regards to 9-1 in Mark's Gospel. So if you read out of the NASB, the New American Standard, what you'll find is that chapter 9, verse 1, it's included in a section that runs all the way down through 9-13. And that's under the title, The Transfiguration. That's all one section. But if you, and, and if that's the case, you probably wondered last week, why is this dude reading 9-1 along with the end of chapter 8? What sense does that make? Has he lost his mind? But if you read out of the NIV or the ESV, what you'll find is that Mark 9-1, it's included in the section that comes before it, the section that's entitled, Jesus Foretells His Death and Resurrection. That's Mark 9-31 through 9-1. And I think that points to just how difficult it is to figure out exactly what is Jesus talking about here in Mark 9-1. 
Is he referring to the, teacher which the teaching which preceded it? Is he talking about the event that comes after it? Or is he talking about something altogether different? What he said was, truly I say to you, this is a statement of authority. This is a thing that was guaranteed to happen. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So we got to remember now, Jesus has just told them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And then three days later, rise again. And then he calls the crowd back to him, and he says, if any of you would come after me, you must follow the same path. You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross daily, and you must follow me. You too must be willing to die. He then goes on to explain why this path, this way, it is the only way that anyone will enjoy true eternal blessing. And he concludes that section there at the end of Mark 8 with these words, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, everything that Jesus says is the word of God. Everything that Jesus says carries with it the full weight and authority of God's holy word. And yet, what we find here are two particularly forceful statements back to back. First, he speaks of when, not if. He speaks of when he will return in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's talking about that day, that last day of the last days, when the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns. Not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And he talks about the fact that only those that truly follow him, only those that are not ashamed of him, even in the midst of this adulterous generation, that only they will enjoy this last day. And so what some people have determined is that this thing that Jesus is talking about here in 9-1, is he looks to those that are around him, he says, surely some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom coming in power. There are some people that have determined that he's pointing to that to the day in which Jesus will return in power, the day in which he will return in, uh, in judgment. Now, we've got, we've got to be careful here. I will tell you that many people that hold to that belief, they find themselves debating against people that deny the inerrancy of Scripture, that call Jesus a false prophet. Because what we know is that everybody that was standing there with Jesus on that day, they all died. They all tasted death long before the time when Jesus will return. Now, I'm not telling you that this translation or this uh, this understanding of this text can't be right. There are some that hold to it. You just got to understand that it requires a lot of maneuvering. It requires a lot of mental work. It, it requires a lot of explaining other than a straightforward understanding of what Jesus has said. So some of you in this room, you may hold to that. You may believe that what Jesus is saying there when he says, some of you will not taste death before you see my kingdom coming in power, that what he's talking about is the day in which he's going to return, riding on a white horse, swinging the sword of judgment. If that's the case, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. There's some other people that hold to the fact that, or hold to the belief that perhaps what Jesus is talking about, when he's talking about his kingdom coming in power, perhaps he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I don't really follow that one either, but one of my preaching heroes, R.C. Sproul, that's what he believes. Others believe that perhaps what Jesus is talking about is when the, when the gospel of Jesus Christ, when that preaching would reach Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's other people that believe that perhaps he's talking about his resurrection. There's other people, people that believe perhaps he's talking about the day of Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church. There are nine or ten different ways that men have come to understand what it is that Jesus is teaching in Mark 9, verse 1. And I think that just points again to the difficulty with understanding exactly what Jesus is pointing at. And, as I've told you before, whenever we come to a particular passage of text, passage of Scripture, and we find that there are many good and faithful and learned men that have gone before us, and they all can't seem to agree they all can't seem to come to some kind of consensus about what it is that Jesus is talking about. We do well to hold on to our own thoughts very lightly. This is not a place for pride. 
This is not a place for arrogance. It's certainly not a place to break fellowship over. So we come to this with great humility, and I would submit to you that I believe what Jesus is talking about here. Because of the placement of this teaching, because of the placement not just in Mark's gospel, but in Luke's and in Matthew's gospel, because of the fact that everybody that was standing on that hill is dead today, long before Jesus is going to come a second time, I believe that he was taught what he's talking about is the thing which immediately follows it, namely the transfiguration. Now, my interpretation of this is not without trouble, because why would Jesus say, some of you will not taste death if none of them would taste death? I don't know. I don't have an explanation. That's why you're going to have to decide for yourself what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 9, verse 1. But again, what I believe that he's saying to these people is, listen, I know how difficult it's going to be for you to believe. I know how difficult it's going to be for you to understand that after the suffering and the rejection and the death, that I will again be coming in glory. And so as an act of love and as an act of grace, in very short order, I'm going to reveal some of this to you. I'm going to give you a foretaste of what it's going to be like when I do come in ultimate glory. So it goes on, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So after six days, Jesus goes alone with just these three. Now, when we studied Jesus sending out of the 12 apostles, we talked about the fact that not all of the apostles would have the exact same access to Jesus. Peter, James, and John. This was the inner circle. They were among the very first disciples that were called to Jesus. They're always listed as the first three whenever the apostles are named. It was these that were called out of those that were called to Jesus. They were set apart for a special purpose. Peter, of course, would be the leader, not only of the apostles, but of the early church. He would be their first preacher. James, of course, was the first of the apostles to be martyred. John was the last of the apostles to die, but again, a leader in the church, one that would be used to write the gospel bearing his name, three epistles, the book of Revelation. And so in anticipation and perhaps preparation for this, Jesus would allow these three access. They would witness things that none of the other apostles would witness. It was these three that would see as Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was these three that would be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. And then these three that would go upon this mountain in this morning's text and see something that no man this side of heaven has ever seen other than them. So we're not told which mountain these men went upon. We're only told that it's a high mountain. But because of the fact that we are told that six days earlier they had retreated up to Caesarea Philippi, because we know that Caesarea Philippi is the base of Mount Hermon, because we know that Mount Hermon has an elevation of more than 9,000 feet. It seems reasonable to me to believe that perhaps that's the mountain that they climbed upon. But that's not really the important thing. Because regardless of which mountain they went upon, surely as these men were climbing this mountain with Jesus, their minds were drawn back to the story that we read in Exodus 9.20. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We know that it was there upon that high mountain that God established his covenant with the people called Israel. We know that it was there that God spoke to Moses. We know that these men would have probably been thinking about all the time that their master had spent going up upon a mountain to meet alone with the Father. And so I can just imagine as they're climbing up this mountain, as they're walking up this mountain behind Jesus, they may have been asking each other, do you think there's any chance we're going to meet God? Is there any chance we're going up this mountain to meet with God like we've heard about from our fathers? Like we know that Jesus, our master, goes upon this mountain to do. Is there any chance we're going to meet with God? And this last few days, they've been just an absolute whirlwind. Just the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. You remember as Jesus turned and he praised Peter. Some of the highest praise any man has ever received. He pours some praise upon Peter and then immediately, just moments later, compares him to Satan himself. Jesus confirmed that he is the Christ, the Messiah, 
the anointed one that they had been waiting for for all these centuries, and then immediately he talks about his suffering and his death. So this had just been an absolute roller coaster. These men were surely mentally and emotionally exhausted, and now they're climbing up a mountain. Luke tells us that once there, as Jesus was over, in the, over to the side uh, praying, that these men were overcome by sleep. Again, this reminds us of the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps they were overwhelmed by sorrow from all that they had just heard, knowing that the one that they had devoted their lives to, the Christ, the one that had called them to follow him, knowing that he was headed towards death and that they too must die if they were going to go after him. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I've awful, often chuckled at just the understated way that John Mark will talk about things that would take you or me days upon days to even try to explain. Almost in passing, he just throws these things out. But I have to believe that what Peter told Mark about what happened on that mountain, it was simply too marvelous to be put into words. And so he tells us here that Jesus was transfigured. The Greek word there is metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from, of course. The first form of that, morph, meaning form. And then meta, when used in this sense, it means to change. So this is a change of form. So other than here and in Matthew's parallel, you will only find this word used twice in the New Testament. In Romans 2.2 and in 1 Corinthians 3.18. And in both instances, Paul is talking about a radical transformation, not something minor. And yet Mark doesn't tell us what this transformation really looked like. He does talk about his clothes. He says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. But if we look at Matthew's account, we find that his face shone like the sun. This may immediately draw your mind to that second coming, to the words that we read in Revelation 1, 12 through 16, where, where we see what, what Jesus will look like. He says, then I turned and I saw a voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand were seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. See, there on the Isle of Patmos, John was given a vision. But now, standing there with Peter, standing there with his brother James, he saw physically, literally, as Jesus was transformed right before his eyes, not with, a, not with a sword coming out of his mouth, not necessarily with fire in his eyes, but with a face that glowed. This transformation that happened literally, physically, right before his eyes. And I don't know that transformation is the best word. I, because when you think about metamorphosis, when you think about transformation, you think about something becoming what it was not. But dear friends, Jesus was merely revealing what he had always been. What Jesus was doing is he was pulling back the veil to his flesh, his humanity. He was providing these men, his closest three apostles, he was providing with them with an opportunity, just a glimpse of who he had always been, putting his glory on display for them. We know that this had always been the glory of Jesus. He said there on the night that he was betrayed in John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with this glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was the word, the word that was with God in the beginning, the word that was God, eternally God. Jesus was not upon that mountain receiving deity. Jesus was not upon that mountain becoming God. He was graciously, lovingly, as a gift to these three, as a gift to us, to those that received this record. He was giving us a picture, just a glimpse of his glorious nature. Don't miss this, church. This is the story of Christmas. As Jesus Christ comes in flesh, comes to earth born of a virgin, 
as he comes the image of the invisible God, as he appeared before them as any other man, we read that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Or Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of man, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This Jesus that looked like other men, and yet to those that were his, to those that had been called to him, what they saw in him was that he said things that only God could say, and he did things that only God could do. So his disciples, as they looked to Jesus and they saw the authority and the love and the power and the mercy and the compassion and the wisdom that only God possessed in him, By the working of God, they were given eyes to see and ears to hear. They could come to know by spiritual eyes to see that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And now it's an act of grace. It's an act of love. Jesus stood on this mountain alone with them, and he allowed them to physically see that glory. Putting his deity, his divinity, his nature as God on display for these men. Affirming his identity for them in the most magnificent way imaginable. Putting the kingdom on display in, word, in ways that are too incredible to fully describe. So I've got to believe that surely at, these moment, at this moment, these three apostles, they realized just how short their confession fell. Surely they looked at each other and said, you know what? We did come upon this mountain to meet with God. He was with us all along. He had always been here, and we didn't understand the half of it. But now in this moment, they see. Now we know that when Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, whenever he would come back down, his face would glow like the moon reflecting the radiance of the sun. We know that his face would glow, but only for a time. Because this radiance, this glow, this light, it did not originate from within Moses. This was traces of God's illuminating presence. And we know that as as Moses spent time away, down with the people, unless he returned to the source, unless he went back to God himself, that this light would fade. But here on this mountain, Jesus wasn't merely reflecting the illumination of another. He wasn't showing the radiance of somebody else. This was the direct unmediated glory of God, no longer hidden behind the weakness of humanity, that he was allowing them to see his radiant, eternal glory, glory which had always been his. The reason that that radiance would not continue was not because it would fade, was because they were not ready to see the fullness. It would go back. It would be clothed again in humanity. And yet we've got to ask ourselves a question. We throw around the word. We just sang about the glory of God. We speak often of the glory of God. Westminster Confession says our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a word that we throw around all the time. But what is the glory of God? How do you define the glory of God? You see, when we talk about God's love, we can explain that to a three-year-old. When we talk about God's mercy, we can explain it to a third grader. When we talk about God's justice, we can explain it to a most anybody. But what is God's glory? That's a tougher definition than you might first think. Most of us, most of us that grew up within the church, when we speak about, when we think about God's glory, oftentimes we think of a picture much like this morning's text. We think about this brilliant light that radiates from the very presence of God. It accompanies God's presence when he reveals himself to men. We may look towards the new Jerusalem where we read at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. We refer to that as the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. In the Old Testament, this would often come in the form of a radiant cloud or an intense light. This was a visible manifestation of the invisible God. This was a localized presence of the omnipresent God. And so we think about God's presence with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
We think about God leading his people through the wilderness. We think about God's presence coming to dwell in the tabernacle. But it must be more than that. When we say that God is glorious, we must be saying more than just God is shiny. God is bright. We must be saying more than even God is brighter than anything you have ever seen. Did I tell him, Carrie? Here's the thing, okay? Y'all are ready for this. God is spirit, okay? God is not made up of matter or energy. And so this light which radiates from him, it must be something which he created. You understand this? This must be something which God created to allow us to see something beyond that, to see something of his nature, to see something of his, something of his character, that this light which is present. Certainly scripture tells us that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. That we should walk in the light rather than the darkness. What he's speaking here is of his absolute moral purity, of his unending knowledge, the fact that he is completely without blemish. But this visible radiant light that is seen here on earth, this must be a thing that was created by God. So at one level, it is absolutely true. It is absolutely true to say that the radiance, the brilliance, the brightness, the visible light which God has created to surround his revelation of himself, that is absolutely God's glory. You are not wrong when you think of God's glory to think of this radiant light, to think of a brilliant cloud, to think of the illumination seen in Jesus' face, to think of that thing which reflected in the face of Moses. But there's got to be more beyond that. When we speak of God's glory, we speak about it as often, oftentimes we speak of it as it's as if it is that one attribute which sums up the totality of who he is. So it's got to be more than just a visible shininess. And we see that. We see God's glory pointed to his character. In the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word is kabod. You remember that there was a priest named Eli. And that Eli, after learning that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, he fell over backwards off of his stool. He broke his neck and he died. And his daughter-in-law was pregnant. When his daughter-in-law gave birth to the baby, she named him Ichabod, which means there is no glory. The glory of God has departed from Israel. So this Hebrew word, kabod, it means honor and glory, but it can also mean weighty or heavy. You see, back then, much like today, what we know is that men's value, men's worth, men's glory, men's honor was tied to how much wealth they had. And a man's wealth, it's measured by weight. So in one sense, when we talk about man's kabod, we're not talking about some particular trait, but rather the scope, the scale, the weight of all that he has. So in that sense, when we think about God's glory, we're thinking about his intrinsic worth, his value, not some specific attribute like love or mercy or goodness or justice or even his holiness. We're talking about the weight. We're talking about the infinitude. We're talking about the vastness of all that God is. If we were to take all the attributes of God, all the infinite attributes of who God is, and you were to run them out to infinity, knowing that all God is, he is infinitely. We can never come to the end of the knowledge of God's love. We can never come to the end of the knowledge of, of God's holiness. We can never come to the end of the knowledge of God's mercy and his justice and his goodness and his power. You take all those and bring them together, and then you begin to touch your, your finger to the tip of what it means to talk about God as being infinitely worthy, infinitely holy, holy infinitely glorious. We're talking about the value of who God is, the weight of who God is, the worth of who God is, the might of who God is, all coming together. This is God's glory. Truly incomprehensible. We'll never come to the end of this. You'll never, as finite creatures, we will never be able to wrap our minds completely around the worth and the value and the greatness of who God is. And if we begin there, 
Then we are ready to move on to the next sense of glory that we find in the New Testament where we read the word doxa, invoking a high opinion. It's where we get our word doxology from. It's praise and honor and renown and splendor. In this sense, the glory of God is the proper praise. It's the proper response. It's the proper honor that is due him because of this unending weight, because of this infinite worth. That's why we can say that we bring God glory, that we give God glory. This does not mean that we add to the value of God. This does not mean that we change the nature of God. This means that we could properly reflect to the world, give back to him the honor that he is due, properly respond to the weight that we know is his. We properly stand in awe under this weight. It's a magnitude of all that God is. Now, as finite beings, we will never truly get there. Everything that we know about God is true. Everything that God has chosen to reveal of himself is true. And yet we will never get to the end of learning about this God. Never be able to fully comprehend the weight of his glory. But I pray that you see all this coming together in Christ Jesus. That I pray what you see represented there in the glowing light that radiates from his face. That I pray what you see there is his infinite worth. And then what I pray that drives you to is to fall to your knees under the weight of that infinite worth as finite beings, knowing that he is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory because you may not in this lifetime, God may not choose to reveal this glowing light to you, but he will put his glory on display. And we can glorify him. That's the picture that we see there in Jesus as he chooses to reveal his glory to these three in these moments. That we realize that he is the one, not just with more love than us, not just with more love than has ever been seen on the earth, but infinitely loving, infinitely merciful, infinitely good, infinitely righteous, infinitely just, infinitely holy. All of that comes together, the fullness of deity dwelling in this man standing there on that mountain with his friends. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, now it's a party. It was just these three, and now Jesus brought some buddies. Now it's even, three to three. These men, they had gone from earth, and hundreds of years ago they had been gone, and now they appear. But why these two? Well, we might remember that these two each had had experiences, miraculous experiences with God up on a mountain, Mount Carmel and Mount Sinai respectively. We may also remember that each of these men departed the earth in very abnormal ways. Elijah swept up in a chariot of fire. Moses called up on Mount Nebo where God allowed him to look into the promised land and then he died and God himself buried him and we know not where his grave is. So we, we know these things, but we have to believe there's something more beyond that, something deeper than just the fact that these men left the earth in mysterious ways. Well, remember that Moses was the one through whom God gave the law. Remember that Elijah was counted as the greatest of the prophets. So surely this represented the totality of the Old Testament, that what God was making clear here to Peter and James and John and us is this, that all of this that we're seeing here, Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, being seen as an ordinary man, being rejected, suffering, dying, and rising again, that this was his plan all along, that this was what the law and the prophets had all foreshadowed, that all that he had spoken, all that he had done through Moses and through Elijah, it was all pointing to this day. Now Luke tells us that Elijah and Moses, he tells us something about that conversation, that what they were talking about with Jesus was his departure, his exodus. Don't you see? These men knew. Once they were taken to heaven, surely they completely knew. At that moment, they realized what their ministry had been all about. They realized that they were preparing the people, that they were making straight the way to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. They knew that their salvation rested on what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection. They knew that they were not saved by the law. They knew that they were not saved because they had spoken with God. 
They knew that the reason that they were saved was because of what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. And so they were there. They were there much like the angels in the wilderness, comforting Jesus and his humanity. But they were also there to make clear to Peter and James and John and to us that this is the only way to eternal life. Quit looking backwards. You look to him. The only way to eternal life is found in this man, Jesus Christ, not the law, not the prophets. They were all pointing forward, and here he is. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is par for the course. Peter didn't know what to say, so he said something. It's a general rule. If you don't know what to say, why don't you just shut up for a little bit? But he pipes up. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But of all the stupid things Peter's ever said, this is not the dumbest. Matter of fact, this one might be quite appropriate because we can be fairly confident that when this was taking place was in the fall, sometime around the time when the Jewish people would have been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would celebrate not only, not only the temporary nature of, of their time there in the wilderness, but also the fact that God did not leave them alone in their wanderings that God came and that he dwelled with them, that he cared for them. In addition to that, perhaps he had in mind this tabernacle in which God came to dwell with his people, where his presence dwelled there over the Ark of the Covenant. He may have been thinking about that, but whatever he was thinking, he knew he didn't want this to end. Good, good. I'm glad you guys are here. We can forget about the suffering. We can forget about the death. We can forget about the rejection. Let's just hang out here in the presence of God forever. This is man's greatest need, to be with God. It should be our greatest desire to spend all eternity with God, to dwell with God, to have God dwell with us. But in his response, Peter betrays his ignorance. Because not only must Jesus be killed and rise again in order for man to truly be able to dwell with God, not only must this happen, but God no longer dwells in a tent. He does not need a tent made by man's hands. He does not need a tabernacle. We know that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. So what they see there is God has come to dwell with us in Jesus and it's in the promise, in the end, that he would come to dwell in us, that we ourselves would be God's temple. No longer is there a tent. No longer is there a tabernacle. No longer is there a temple. I don't need you to build me a tent. I'm up to something so much more. But you'll notice that nobody even seems to take note of what Peter says. Like, they don't even respond to him. All of a sudden, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, these men weren't having visions of Moses up on Sinai before. They surely were now. You remember this cloud, concealing as much as revealing, because man cannot fully see the glory, cannot fully see the face of God and live. And so this, this, this cloud that would often represent the presence of God, shown in this brilliant crowd, cloud, that cloud that filled the tabernacle so that no one could even enter into the place. If this was God speaking, not through a mediator, not through a prophet, this was a voice of God himself speaking. It reminds us of Jesus' baptism. But this time, all of these that are there, they hear this. It says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I don't know exactly what is meant by this. When he says, listen to him, was he perhaps saying, in view of the law, in view of the prophets, quit looking backwards to them, look forward. This is the word. This is the word, and you need to listen to him. Or perhaps he was calming their spirits. Perhaps he knew how anxious they were about what was coming next, and so he was telling them, do not fear the suffering. Do not fear the rejection. Do not fear the death which you have been told about. Listen to my son. Follow him, and you will see glory. We aren't told, but Matthew tells us that the men were terrified, and they fell to their faces. And then that Jesus goes over, he touches them, and he says, rise, have no fear. 
And then, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Just like that. This incredible moment. The most magnificent scene in all the world. Now look, there's plenty that Jesus did, which is truly mind-boggling. And yet this has to take the cake. And just like that, they find themselves standing there with a man that looks just like every other man there on the mountain. No more bright lights. No more visitors from heaven. No more voice from a cloud. Just them and the one that they had been following for two and a half years. But how could they ever see him the same after this? They couldn't. And that's the point. God knows what awaits these men is hard. Listen, just to preach a sermon last week about what awaits those men and what awaits any of us that would seek to come after Jesus Christ. That was hard. I imagine sitting through it was no picnic either, right? It's hard enough. And God knows that our flesh is going to reject this. Our Our flesh is going to reject suffering and pain and rejection. Certainly we're going to resist death. And so knowing all of this, knowing how difficult it will be for these men to picture in light of the suffering, in light of the rejection, in light of the death, how difficult it's going to be for them to picture glory and honor coming in the midst of all this. So as an act of grace, as an act of absolute love, he gave these men and then passed on to us this unforgettable picture. See, James and John and Peter, they would stumble. They would struggle to understand. They would continue to struggle to understand. They would run away in that last day, but they would never forget what was revealed to them there on that mountain. Listen to the words of Peter. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they were eyewitnesses, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. Do you hear this? He's saying, I don't preach to you the words of men. I don't preach to you traditions. I don't preach to you myths. I don't preach to you things that we've made up. I don't preach to you things that we've heard from somebody else. I preach to you things that I saw with my own eyes. I saw the glory of God. I was there on that holy mountain. We beheld his glory. We beheld the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. We saw it in his face. We heard the Father's voice. Eyewitness testimony to what they had seen. And then John, John 1, 14. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying, listen, the glory of God, men rejected the glory of God. They're in the garden because they wanted their own glory. That's the bend of men's heart. That's the way fallen men go. Because they desired their own glory, they could no longer dwell with God there in the garden. And yet God so loved man as an act of mercy, steadfast love, slow to anger. As an act of this, he continued to dwell with men. But no longer will he dwell with men in tents. He did something even more marvelous than that. He came to dwell in human flesh. He came to dwell among us, to be one like us, to take on flesh that he could die for us. That's the picture. That's the thing that these men are celebrating. There's no greater news in all the earth. And this was the memory that would surely sustain these men on many a dark nights. I've got to imagine that there on the Isle of Patmos that John was thinking over and over and over again about what he had seen on that mountain. That sustained him as he looked forward to the glory to come. As he took up his cross as he denied himself, as he marched towards death. Surely this picture, this image, the glory that God chose to reveal in the glorious light radiating from the face of his son, surely that was something that sustained him. And beloved, the answer is the same for us. I would ask you, how many of you during during this last week, you find yourselves having great trouble trying to figure out how to die to yourself, 
How do I die to myself? Have I really died to myself? What if I like that part of myself? And what about denial? What parts do I deny? If I denied enough, oh, no, I'm not very good at this. I'm a pretty crummy Christian. How am I going to get out of this mess? What do I do now? Maybe we can go back Sunday and we can sing the right songs, and then I can change. You see, we become self-consumed in our self-denial. We so focus on self when we try to die to self. And the answers are not insane. The answers are not are focusing on the God of self. You see, the more we focus on the God of self, the bigger he becomes. So the answer isn't in trying harder. It isn't in buckling down. The answer is in beholding the glory of God. Don't you see? Your efforts to die to self, they can very often lead to just more self-consumption. But instead, if we'll heed the words of Paul, if we will trust the God to shine the light of our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, if we will, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. We will be changed if we look at the glorious face of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. It's not more focus on self. It's not hating self. It's looking to the glorious face of Jesus Christ and there being changed. I hope that you're not tired of me pleading this point. It's basically all I've talked about. You don't know the point of every message I've preached for like the last eight weeks? It's this. Behold the glorious face of Jesus Christ and be changed. That's your answer. Don't work. Don't try. Don't focus on self. Behold the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's some bright lights right here. If I stare at those bright lights long enough, every single one of you disappear. It's focusing on nothing else than the glorious light in the face of Jesus Christ. You focus on the glory of Christ, and you become real small real quick. Your troubles become real small real quick. Taking up your cross, denying self, those things begin to flow out of you because you just want more of that light. The affliction, the suffering, the rejection, they become might, light and momentary because you just want more of that light. You can't focus on anything other than the glorious face of Jesus Christ and everything else disappears. That's the answer. To spend our every waking hour focusing on the glory of Jesus Christ. And again, you're probably not going to see a radiant light, but you can see his glory all throughout his word. In his very first miracle, turning public miracle and turning water into wine in Cana, it says that as he did this, this was one of the first signs by which Jesus made his glory known. That in his very works, in his very word, in his very person, we can see the glory of God. We see it on display. It makes us long for more. That's why we come to this word. I want to see more of your glory. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. We're not just asking, God, would you be shiny? We're saying, would you show us your infinite worth? Would you display to us the weight of who you are? And then under that weight, under that gravity, would you drive us to the ground? Would you drive us to our knees? Would you drive us not to think less of ourselves, but to think less often of ourselves? To focus completely and totally on you, knowing that then the weight of the world will seem like nothing. That's the picture. And whatever portion of faith God has given you, that you would come to his word and you would long to see his glory. That as you come into this place, you would long to glorify him, to express back to him some of that glory, knowing that you were never going to get here. We're never, as finite beings, never going to fully understand, fully wrap our minds around. And that's beautiful. Who wants a God they can figure out? Who wants a God they can wrap their mind around? Who wants a God they can get to the end of and go, well, that was nice. What do I figure out now? Physics? It's the reason you exist is to behold the glory of God 
is revealed in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, and by gazing into that glory that you would be changed. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We praise you, Father, because you are glorious. Infinitely worthy. And Father, you are deserving of all our honor and all our praise. Father, the purpose for our gathering together in this place is that you would be glorified in our presence as we behold the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, that is our desire, to see, to know, and to live in light of your glory, to reflect that glory back to the world as we ourselves move from one degree of glory to another. As the temple of the Holy Spirit ourselves, Father, we pray that you would work in and through us that the world would see and know and they too would fall on their faith, face in light of your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would give us that desire more than anything else, that you would fill us with that desire that your glory and your glory alone will be the very purpose for our existence. Father, we pray that you would be pleased by the words that we sing now, that you would be honored and glorified, that we would feel you moving among us, knowing, Father, that we long for that glorious day when we shall see your Son as he truly is and we will be changed. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.